for weeks on end I was meep meep why won't you help the little meep <laughs> and then I would go moopsie <laughs> <laughs> if I were to write fan fiction it would be the meep versus the moopsie <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. This week, we hop into the TARDIS to battle meeps and toy makers and meet the new Doctor. Both of them. And finally, what we're fanning over in the new year. Also, we're back, baby! Russell T. Davies makes his triumphant return as Doctor Who's showrunner with three 60th anniversary specials featuring both new and familiar faces. The Star Beast brings back the coupling of David Tennant's 10th Doctor and the beloved Donna Noble as they deal with a furry alien who is not what Meep seems. Wild Blue Yonder sends the Doctor and Donna spinning out of control to the edge of the universe where they must confront a sinister force that mirrors their physical forms and their inner pain. And finally, all good things must come to an end, or do they, as the Doctor battles one of his oldest enemies in The Giggle. Having Davies back, I feel like the music, the energy, this is Doctor Who again for me. And I love 13 and Jodie Whittaker. And I love some of the twists and performances in her run, such as Sasha Duane's The Master, but overall, Chibnall's run after the first year just didn't click with me. I'm a Whovian from way back. My first doctor was Tom Baker. My first companion was Sarah Jane Smith. And unlike you, Mark, I did enjoy the majority of Stephen Moffat's run, hmm. uh, but mostly for Matt Smith's 11 and Peter Capaldi's last year. Like I always say, I prefer 11 with the Ponds and 12 with Bill and Nardwall. And the Clara years were just some stuff Moffat was working out on the page, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I like about Russell T. Davis is he always manages to bring a tear to my eye. I mean, I'm still crying after several years over the end of It's Ascent. And I love that his companions are just ordinary folks with no special destiny, unlike Moffat's companions. And I feel like we're getting back that same sort of energy that's been missing for a while. Yeah, Moffat was basically writing The Time Traveler's Wife over and over and over again. And then he finally did a series on it. <laughs> he finally got it out of his system. Yeah, yeah, maybe. You know, Ryan, how I always say that I'm not a Star Trek fan. I'm a Gene Roddenberry fan. Yeah. Well, it's the exact same thing with Doctor Who. I realized I, I'm not really a fan of it as a whole. I was introduced to it with Eccleston's Doctor, and I, I didn't really dig uh, Moffat's tenure as showrunner. I liked Chibnall's more didactic take in the first season, but after that, I, I just wasn't interested. Uh, what I am a fan of is Russell T. Davies. I loved his Doctor Who. 
and I love Torchwood and Sarah Jane Adventures, and I love his work outside the Whoverse. Uh, you mentioned It's a Sin. It was brilliant. I also loved Years and Years and A Very English Scandal. These are shows that were so good that even my wife is a fan of his, having never seen any Doctor Who. I'm actually such a fan of Davies that, that in a way I'm a little upset that he's returning to Doctor Who because, you know, when we talked about uh, how nothing is new anymore a few weeks ago, his original work is so good that it's a shame that he's going to wind up siphoning a lot of his energy into a franchise as opposed to original shows where he has been killing it for the past 10 years. Yeah, I understand that. You know, I think that's also a fair critique because now you have other people like Greta Gerwig and all that going into more franchise territory. You always fear a loss of originality there. But I think for me, it boils down that if Russell T. Davis still feels he has stories worth telling within this universe, then I welcome him back. And I don't think it negates him doing original work, but it is, you're right. It's going to take a, it's going to take a great chunk of his energy and his time, but, and we'll, we'll get to it a little later, but who else better to introduce what could be considered the first queer doctor, like blatantly queer doctor. Absolutely. Like upfront queer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is the guy who, who wrote Queer as Folk. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the original, as they would say. The original. And I, I still have to watch his trilogy of banana, cucumber, and I forgot what the other penis fruit was. <laughs> uh, eggplant? Maybe. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm glad to have him back in any case. I love if just for the fact that we have Donna again. Donna and Martha were my favorites of his companions, both of whom I thought got a little shortchanged. As a fan, I didn't like Donna's fate as the Donna Doctor originally. But as a writer, I'm like, that's 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 goddamn good writing. You know, it rips your chest open with a temper schism of emotion. And, you know, I, I cried then. And every time I see a clip from it, I cry now. Yeah, I even had a tear in my eye in the opening narration when Donna's like, I feel like I'm missing something to her in the climax, you know, going, but I'm just a nobody. Why would you care if I die? And I, he, that, Davies really lives with these real relatable companions. Donna thinks she's dumb. And just a nothing when she's the greatest of them all. It's not hoisted upon her like a crown, like we got in the Moffat years. Yeah. You know, it, there's no hanging a lantern on how great Donna is. We know she is. She knows she is. But she's a human being who has self-doubt like all of us. And it makes her more relatable. And, and that's what made her losing her memories at the end of her tenure so difficult to stomach because... She grew so much as a human being, and she had so little in her life. Yeah. And being with the doctor made her richer and also made him richer. And to sort of have that all wiped away, I mean, this is, you know, for 10 years, it's been a really harsh sticking point in, I think, uh, uh, Davy's tenure for me. And... I'm glad that he did something that made up for it. I'm glad he fixed it. 
I don't know if he necessarily fixed it, but he evolved it. He did what any good writer did. He took a tragedy and found a better story out of it in the end, right? Um, yeah. I love that Donna was, even though her memories were gone, she was so ingrained with her time with the doctor that she gave away her money, all of her money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love that, that when, when Donna is fully back, that's the first thing she reams the doctor on. I gave away all my money so I could be like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I also love that Donna and the doctor have a relationship where they are truly just friends, that they are just mates. Because every time we get a female companion with the doctor, there's always sort of like this romantic tension. And I love that with Donna, it's just, this is my, this is my friend, you know, uh, with yeah. Amy, it started out that way. And then it changes when it becomes obvious that that's his mother-in-law, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were saying that Amy was originally romantically attracted to him, yeah. right? She tries to kiss him at one point, yeah. I believe. She does in the in the like in the in like her first episode I think at the end. Yeah, which again is awfully weird because this is a man that she met when she was a child. There's also the point in her first adventure where there's a line about how Rory would dress up as the Raggedy Doctor mm -hmm. for Amy. So there was a you know a kinky component there going on. Ew. <laughs> You know, one of the problems with a lot of the Doctor's companions is that, of course, they're all much younger than him. Yeah. But, I mean, they're really young. And even, I guess, the, the most recent companion, which we'll talk about in our forthcoming episode, is, is very young. But Donna is a middle-aged woman, and she's seen shit, and he still may be, you know, a thousand years older than her, but he can't really, like, pull the wool over her eyes no. she's not enamored with him she's enamored with what he can provide her and yeah it, it's it certainly comes off as a platonic relationship at some points though i kind of feel like there may be a friends with benefits thing going on because uh there are some scenes that are almost sexual when they are moving through time and controlling the tardis together that says to me that there may be a little more to this than i think a lot of people uh think well, so long, so long as Sean is okay and they're polyamorous, it's fine. It's fine in the in the noble temple family. <laughs> yes, yes, but uh, yeah, Donna is definitely a fully formed individual. She has skills which she uses yeah. regularly. I love that with Donna, skills that are so easily dismissed, her being a temp, yeah, and being a fast typist, are the things that save the universe in the end. Yes. In a way, there's there's like a a, a class commentary there yeah. because she's so very working class, and yet she has the ability to, like you said, save the universe over and over again. Like we wouldn't all be here without Donna Noble. I I would think that even if she still had her memory, she would have given away her money or put herself somewhere where she could help people, which you know we will eventually see out of this three. So. If she hadn't lost her memory, she might have been traipsing around the universe still. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? She might, uh, yeah, she might be in charge of unit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
speaking of Donna, I do really love the evolution of her family here. Like Sean's got the dad vibe down. You know, I love when he comes in. He's like, oh, there's all this chaos. The meep is like hanging off the doctor. And all he says is, dad's home. Something smells good. You know, just like, he's just unfazed. <laughs> like, oh, there's an alien in my kitchen. But, you know, dinner's ready, you know. Um, and And Rose is a breath of fresh air in this franchise. Much needed breath of fresh air. Yeah. The new Rose. <laughs> yeah. This is the reason why I say that I'm a Russell T. Davies fan. This is the auteur uh, quality about him, to bring humor to the most frantic, painful, tragic scenes of like, one second you are crying, and I cried a lot at the beginning of Starbeast and at the end, and I was in a public place while I was watching it <laughs> on an airplane, and that couldn't stop me from just bawling. I'm talking ugly snot crying, okay? And then suddenly be laughing, like, yeah. out loud, uncontrollably. Yeah. That is that is Davies. Dave, Davies is very talented at releasing the air and the tension, releasing the air in the room, yeah. uh, which not many writers are, are good at. He brings levity without it being cheap. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't sully what is going on at that moment. No. He knows how to use it properly. His timing is really good. And, you know... I think in a lot of ways, speaking of Rose, uh, Donna's daughter, uh, trans daughter, yeah. who's much needed given how England is, is, is just as scarily anti-trans as the United States is right now on the right. Um, She's a wonderful fuck you to yeah. everybody in England right now who is vocally... Uh, uh, transphobic. Yeah, and I think Doctor Who really excels, and more than Star Trek at times, is inclusivity, at least since Davies' revival, first revival. Yes. And I really hope we get to see more of Rose Noble in the future. I, I, I would love her to meet up with uh, Shudi's uh, doctor at some point. Yeah, that would be great. Talking about you know what's happening in England right now, I was reading reviews and, you know, it's not just trolls like J.K. Rowling who are oh. monstrous about this stuff. It's major critics yeah. uh, like ones at The Telegraph and even at the BBC who were calling this episode preachy just because it had a trans character in it and a 10 second discussion of pronouns like, oh, yeah, like yeah. these people's minds were fucking exploding on the page because of this girl's lived experience as a human being. I mean, seriously, what is wrong with them? Any sign that other people exist is offensive to them, right? Yeah. Because now they no longer control the narrative, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody like Rose is going to be constantly thinking about pronouns simply because other people are going to be using them wrong all the time. For instance, like when we saw her getting bullied on the street as she's coming home, and she gets dead named in that scene. Yeah. And and so she has to talk to people about them all the time. And and people may think that that's preachy, but it's not. It is just the lived experience of other human beings, mostly because you're making their lives miserable. Uh, and you can't just use the pronouns that they want. Or at least try. 
You know, Mark, there's this uh, wonderful interview that Miriam Margols, who is the voice of the meat, gives on the Graham Norton show, where she discusses how she came to accept they, them as a singular pronoun. Because, you know, in school, we're it's, it's, it's grinded into our heads, uh, at least uh, before, that they, them was not a singular pronoun, that it was a plural pronoun. And uh, Margols herself is a member of the LGBT community. And it's just, it's just wonderful seeing how just by having a conversation with someone that is trans, that she was able to change her mind on that. And as she wonderfully puts it, you know, why, why not use the pronouns that someone wants because it makes them happy? I mean, it costs us nothing. And it means the world to them, literally. I met a wonderful actress in Australia, Zoe Tarakis, and she's trans. And she had a discussion with me about it. And she said, what does it matter to you if you can make somebody happy by calling them they instead of he or she? Why not do it? And I thought, that's right. It doesn't matter about grammar. <laughs> if you can make someone happy and give them a sense of themselves, then do it. Here's the thing, with all these groups, these, these anti-trans, anti-this, da-da-da-da, uh, the Christian evangelicals, all that, they don't want anyone to infringe upon them, but they want to infringe and impose upon everyone else. And then they're the ones who cry wolf that their rights are being denied while they're trying to deny the rights of someone to use something as simple as a, as a goddamn pronoun. You know, it's, um, I hate to use that boogeyman word, but it's, it's patriarchy. It's as simple as that. They think that being trans is someone who they see as a man giving up their power as a man to be a woman or someone that they see as a woman gaining the power of a man without earning it by birth. Shaking that up, saying that gender isn't a birthright topples that whole system. And it's crazy not just to see that from religious people, as you said, but from secularists like J.K. Rowling or Bill Maher. Fuck Bill Maher. Or Russell Brand. Fuck Russell Brand. <laughs> Those people are even more disappointing because they're supposedly the atheists who are above all this traditional 5,000-year-old cow herder god nonsense. And yet they are clinging to this traditional gender binary because it benefits them. Patriarchy benefits them. And white patriarchy, let's 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 be really frank there. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it benefits them, right? J.K. Rollins is using white feminism, not feminism, white feminism, to justify her actions. I, I do want to, before I forget, I do want to mention that the Star Beast is based on a 1980s comic, Doctor Who comic by Pat Mills and artist Dave Gibson of Watchmen fame. He was the artist on Watchmen. And the animatronic puppet Meep is just straight out Dave Gibson's art. It's just brought to life. Uh, and I'm glad that they got credit at the very top along with RTD's writing credit. And that's more than any Marvel creator, writer, artist has ever gotten in any of the MCU films. So I just want to make that note. It's true. Marvel doesn't give any credit to any of its comic writers Not at on all. the movies that it produces. 
and and here we had Russell T Davis basically saying, "Yeah, this is uh this is that comic book yeah. <laughs> that we all loved." Yeah. <laughs> meep, meep. And here's who wrote it. <laughs> Why won't you help the little they... meep? <laughs> meep meep. Moopsie. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about Wild Blue Yonder. It was not as funny as Star Beast, especially after the first act, but um, certainly a great slow burn of an episode uh, to showcase the Doctor and Donna's very strong bond. Yeah, I mean, these two love each other. Yeah, okay. Yeah. In in a in a in a very uh, I don't want to say Kirk Spock way because that's definitely sexual, but very close. They have a they have a <laughs> they have a bond that transcends space and time. Yes. yes. Uh, I, I also, yeah, I also, I like that we get this big episode at the top. And obviously, since the next episode is the a regeneration story, also another big over the top. I love that mm -hmm. we had a moment where we could pause and have a smaller, more intimate story that uses body horror to explore who these people are and what they mean to each other. Well, uh, yeah. It's very, it's, it's very John Carpenter meets uh, David Cronenberg in that way. Yeah. And, and they get to be alone and get to know each other again, whether it is between each other or even with their doppelgangers yeah. to just sort of catch up and see where they are and to reaffirm uh, you know, their affection for one another. I mean, I was close to tears again when Tennant kissed Tate's hand while promising to get her home. Yeah. And and has there ever been a, a more Donna moment than Tate yelling that she was going to go kick some alien yeah. ass? I mean, there you go. <laughs> there you go again of going from, from absolute, like, sincere, gut-wrenching kind of uh, um, emotionality to humor and it's perfect yeah it's pitch perfect yeah when you you mentioned the moment that uh 14 kisses donna's hand and that's a very sweet moment i'm gonna get you home i'm gonna get you back to your family i want to say how much that this 14 looks like 10 right and very strong reasons for that has a lot of 10s personality but this is this is a more open, more emotional. Uh, I've left a lot of the trauma of the time war behind, although now he has new trauma, but he's more willing to display those emotions. He's willing to admit things like the whole, you know, where he thought Isaac Newton was hot, which yeah. by the way, was, was <laughs> one of the actors from it's a sin. Uh, oh, yes. Um, uh, where you know they meet uh, Newton in the moment where he discovers Mavity. Uh, Mavity, yes, it is Mavity from now on. It is Mavity from now on in the Doctor Who universe? In all of our universes. In all of our universes. And I love that he. Yeah, I love that Sandra Bullock movie Mavity. That's a great flick. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I, I love that this is a fourteen. That's that's willing to admit he loves people, that he cares for people, or he's attracted to people. And I feel like 
this is a nice evolution for Tenet to play. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue seeing a more emotionally open Doctor because the first shot of the next Doctor in his first full episode, which we will talk about again in, in, a, in a forthcoming uh, episode of this podcast, he's crying. Yeah. Yeah. And when was the last time you saw that? I don't remember either. I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe right before Tenet changed into uh, Matt Smith. Maybe, yeah. I don't want to go. Oh, you, yeah. you couldn't see it through the through the raindrops. Yeah. Um... But, um, you know, this is another beautiful thing about Donna as the companion is that you, you can allow for this woman to have a freak out, to panic, to be a little bit of a damsel for just a moment because you know that in one more second she's going to knock the door down with her foot yeah. and confront whatever is out there, you know? She can have those moments where she loses her cool because you know that she's going to regain it at any moment. You don't have to worry that, oh, the doctor is going to have to fix all this. Yeah, and I, I love that Donna is a character that can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the doctor. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the old joke is is that the doctor will always explain things later because, you know, the companion is not as, you know, is, is not in the know and all this. It's nice to have a companion that is in the know, who's had all these adventures, who has shared mm -hmm. some of his memories and can stand with him as opposed to standing behind him. Mm -hmm. And probably uh, more than any other companion, she was always able to call him out on his shit. Yeah, and, and as you know, I'm very fond of those characters. Whether it was in Pompeii or whether it was with the Ood oh. or whether it was with dealing with his daughter, which I wonder if she will make a comeback in this new era. I would love that. But um, she's always been there to say, hey, buddy, you're messing up right now. You're not in the space that you should be. Uh -huh. And um, bringing his humanity out. Yeah. Uh, uh, as you know, I'm very fond of, of characters who push the lead characters shed in and makes them think and challenges them. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I love that Donna is that. And... And it also, I love that this is a friendship that has been ongoing for how long now? Almost 20 years? Mm -hmm. From an audience perspective, at least. Yeah. And I like that. I like that it's, it's there's something comforting in that. And there's something interesting to explore with that. It's always great when something's new, but I also think it's also great when something's familiar mm -hmm. and reassuring. It's maybe why I watch a lot of the old Star yeah. Trek over and over again. <laughs> I think that um, Tenet and Tate do a really great job playing evil versions of themselves. Their facial expressions during the standoff, when the Doctor was figuring out why the ghost ship's captain killed herself, were really subtly horrifying there's so many instances in science fiction of a hero facing their doppelganger and this one was one of the best mostly because of the caliber of the actors yes and i fully believe that david Tennant can contort his body like that without the need of special <laughs> effects 
You're just nothing but a string bean. <laughs> you know what's funny about David Tennant is that, like, we've talked about this a couple of times, how I can't watch T.J. Hooker, not just because it is disgusting propaganda, but because William Shatner is so horrendous in it, not just as an actor, but as a human being, you know, as the character themselves, that he gives me what my daughter calls the ick. And I say, if I watch him like this, he will color my outlook on Captain Kirk. Yeah. I don't want my view of Captain Kirk to be sullied by a performance like T.J. Hooker. But David Tennant, I have seen this guy and loved this guy in Jessica Jones. Uh, and he was the villain in that one. Yes, so. he was not only a villain, he was like the most horrendous of villains. And, you know, I'm even, you know, I'm thinking about like the evil uh, 14th Doctor in this episode and sort of how he's chasing and he's calling to them. And it reminds me of, of Tenet in Jessica Jones going, you know, Get back here, Jessica! And somehow Tenet has managed to not poison his other roles. Like, I can see him as that vicious evil guy. I can see him as, like, the drunk detective in Broadchurch. And I can see him again here, and they're all separate from each other no. for some reason. And I think that that's a testament as to how he can uh, get into these roles and really truly become them and make them all stand out from one another. Yeah. Because I guess Shatner, when he's doing T.J. Hooker, is just doing his Shatner shtick. You know what I mean? He's not becoming another person necessarily. He's just Shatner being an, a horrible cop. I haven't watched T.J. Hooker in years. Uh, I did rewatch the first season not too long ago, and it's 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 a weird show. It. It wants to be a gritty cop show like Hill Street Blues, but it's still like trapped in this Aaron Spelling way of doing television. So it it comes across as this weird smash of glitzy and grit. Anyway, well let's let's get back to Doctor Who. I don't want to talk about T.J. Hooker. Yes. Um, you know, also what I liked about this is is that the stakes were emotional. They were not universe-changing stakes. They were small, personal. I like that we took a breath to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you'd think that, oh, we have three specials, so all of them have to be these, you know, one-hour movies, and especially with that mm -hmm. nice, sweet Disney money that they're getting now. <laughs> yes. Which is definitely showing on screen. Um, yeah. With their uh, with the Marv robot in this one, the one that's moving slow, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm so lonely, uh, <laughs> you know. But I I like that we get to slow down and we get to reflect and process and deal with the consequences of their their not only the recent actions but the actions that happened during Whitaker's run, uh, the actions that happened between. Uh, Donna and Ten, like it's just, and it's in the backdrop of a good old-fashioned Doctor Who spaceship monster. I mean, it doesn't get more Who than that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So before we move on, we've got to mention 
Bernard Cripps, who recently passed. This episode is his final performance as Wilf, Donna's grandfather. I cried seeing him. And, and then the, just the sheer joy and, and, and happy tears that Wilf had seeing David Tennant's doctor again and Donna being herself again, all whole. And I, I, you know, I know that he was older and he wasn't able to, you know, be in the next one. And the next one, I think it's a, a stand-in. Yeah, just for a second. You, you don't even see him. And then some looped dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I was I was a sobbing mess seeing Wolf again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was great to see Wolf again. It was great to see Wolf getting everything that he ever hoped for, for both Donna and the Doctor, uh, uh, being able to see him again, being able to see Donna Hall, and him waiting like a puppy there for them to come back. I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, we miss you, Bernard. We miss you. All right, Ryan, so far we've been pretty in sync about these specials, but I think we're about to have a, a bit of a parting of the ways because the giggle is probably my least favorite of this trilogy. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that I can't stand Neil Patrick Harris at all. You don't like NPH? Oh, no. I just <laughs> I don't find him whimsical. Uh, you know, talk about talk about coloring a, an actor with... Uh, with the ick, he's always going to be Barney Stinson to me. And I find his fake accents extremely grating. So him being the big bad in this episode had no teeth for me. Well, that's okay then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> an entire hour of that <laughs> and doing a German it was like having budget Peter Sellers around it just didn't work uh, funny, funny story I am going to get your doctor <laughs> you don't like Doogie? no uh, I did see uh, NPH in Anthony Rapp's role in Rent uh -huh. and it was also the troupe that Wilson Cruz was playing Angel. Mm -hmm. uh, so just kind of like the crossing of the Star Trek worlds with, with Neil Patrick Harris. But uh, mm -hmm. I didn't mind him so much. I mean, he's, he's you know, and I, I didn't really watch a lot of How I Met Your Mother. I didn't mind Neil Patrick Harris. And I think for a character like the Toymaker, which is basically an imp, I, I think you need, you know, someone that's a little over the top and ridiculous and, whose accents might be questionable. Hmm. And I think that just seemed to lean into uh, Neil Patrick Harris's talents as opposed to, to putting more on him that did not suit him. You know, like the toy maker really being utilized in the giggle is more of that Mr. Mizia's Pitalik and Q type of character. Yeah. And I've, no, I, and I've only seen the, the, the little bits of the original toy makers appearance that still exists because you know the the first three episodes were lost and recorded over yeah and i i like a uh, uh, mix yes bitlick and and q a lot i think with another actor this bad guy could have been uh, just fine somebody mentioned martin short that that would have been really interesting um <laughs> but yeah neil patrick harris no yeah i'm sorry well i i, I get it i do like though 
that uh, Russell T. Davis did drop the questionable half-ass yellow face look of the original, <laughs> who was known as the Celestial Toy Maker. And mm -hmm. Celestial is also an old slur that I learned for Chinese people. So, uh, really? and the toy maker's costume was also vaguely Chinese. So I'm mm. very, very glad they went in a different direction. They did, except for the, the little flashback that, uh, memory flashback that uh, David Tennant has. We don't really spend a lot of time with that. And I'm completely glad that uh, R.T. Davis noticed that and was like, that's not going to play well anymore. Well, I mean, this is the era where we have taken Davros out of the wheelchair. Yeah. So yeah, which I'm also because glad. Yeah, they've decided that they don't want to have a uh, disabled individual be the evil one. And and we, and we have the new scientific advisor of of Unit is also someone that's disabled, but is on the good side. So it's a fair it's a fair trade for me. Fair trade. Yes, and I like that character a lot in in both this one and and in the first episode. She's fantastic, and I love her sort of like energy, and I love the barbs she she hurls at the doctor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's she's a she's a Davies character for sure. Yeah. Excitable, full of life, but able to get serious and get shit done. Yeah. Although I don't know about you, but. Did Unit buy Avengers Tower? Was that part of the deal with Disney? <laughs> I, Does Tony I Stark guess. exist in know. the Hughverse that he sold to them Avengers Tower? <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of time to uh, to discuss this since the specials came on, so I know that we also kind of disagree on Shooty Gatwa's first appearance. I feel a little bit like David Tennant's doctor still existing uh, after the transformation waters down got was doctor a little bit I think it's now possible for some people and some of the worst people and we know that they're out there we know what they're like to say that uh got is not the real doctor because Tennant is still around right. and I, I personally had hoped that instead of being killed for the third time because my heart couldn't take it Tennant would simply outlive his usefulness uh, kind of like the war doctor did and just change into Gatwa when he was done with the story you know there was a lot of reason for the tense doctor's face to come back and when that reason was complete it would have been nice if he just left okay uh, I'm going to throw some curveballs at you Sure. I, I get what you're saying. I think it's completely valid. We know that there are the worst elements of fandom out there in all fandom, and they rear their ugly heads all the time, and they proclaim everything is woke and this and that. And, you know, I, I can totally understand how one could see bringing Tenant back, especially as a sort of way to soften the blow of having your first queer black doctor right for these people yeah i get that the same thing also really happened with jody whitaker's run because she, what happened the first female doctor she gets paired with two old white guys as companions mm -hmm. not once but twice mm -hmm. right <laughs> yeah and there was some argument there in, in in amongst fans that that was also another way to sort of water down 
certain elements of fandom that would be like, oh, the doctor can't be a woman, uh, even though we... And it didn't work. And it... Softening things never works. They're never happy. Yeah, they're never happy. Because now, like, when Tenet came back, they were like, yeah, this proves that a woman doctor can't work, right? They always find a way to twist it and twist it to the narrative, mm -hmm. the demented narrative in their head that can't accept that other people exist, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I get that. Totally get that. Totally valid. I totally understand that concern. I feel that concern sometimes, too, with the introduction of queer characters, uh, especially POC characters. I get it. But the argument could be made that with every regeneration, all those other doctors still exist because they always come back mm -hmm. in some way. So they all exist alongside one another in this weird wibbly-wobbly time travel show. I think it's mm -hmm. just more blatantly said here. But here's why I don't have a problem with the by regeneration. I'll say that 10 times, by regeneration, by regeneration. Uh, but here's why hmm. <laughs> why I don't have an issue with it. Because in sci-fi, this is the only place where you can do something that they encourage you to do metaphorically in trauma-based therapy that you can do physically. And that's hug and comfort your younger traumatic self. You know, I've done it... I, I, done it metaphorically but i've never been able to do it physically i can't go back in time mm -hmm. so that moment that 15 recognizes the pain of 14 and how burnt out 14 is because he's not just burnt out because of what happened to whitaker's doctor he's burnt out because of everything that's happened since william hartnell all of that never yeah. processing it just kept going even Smith's doctor says something to pawn that, uh, that, you know, he never looks back, right? He doesn't have time to look back because he's running before things flame out and disappear. In that moment where they, they embrace, he kisses Tennant and comforts him. It, it hits me in a, a, a place I can't, I don't know if I have the words or the capacity to describe because it's everything I've wanted to do for myself. It's almost as great as that moment where, where Kirk admits, I don't like this darker part of me, but it's part of me and I have to take back. It's that moment taken to another level. And I think this is more of a benefit for Shuti's doctor. It clears away all that emotional baggage where the first black queer doctor can operate from a place of joy and not trauma, where he can just be. And it's a different type of narrative now. It's not a narrative based on trauma. It's a narrative based on joy. I understand that perfectly. Yeah, I completely get you and I completely agree with you. I wonder if it would work for me better if somehow tenant would have again just disappeared afterwards like maybe he dissolves or something i don't know but um i just would feel more comfortable having one doctor around as opposed to a backup doctor well there's a... <laughs> uh i i get it i understand and there are t now two david tenant doctors in the universe because there's one that uh rose tyler is stooping making out with right now as well in another stooping <laughs> another universe 
Stupping, yes. Uh, <laughs> I get that, but I also I also like what it does for Tennis Doctor because we've never just seen him stop and live. And I love that moment where they're just having lunch on the veranda and just being yeah. a family, you know? Yeah. And not doing some wacky wild adventure. That's something that I missed in this one also, I think, that made it lesser to me is that, you know, I get that Wild Blue Yonder is all about the Doctor and Donna and them getting to know each other again and working through things together. I was disappointed that Donna's family didn't have really any part in this story. They just sort of disappeared for the whole episode. David made me love Donna and Rose's relationship in Star yeah. Beast, and he gave us this uh, very little of it in The Giggle. I, I just wanted more. And that's a good place to be, right? Always leave them wanting more. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen more yeah. of that. But I do love the last scene. And I love that this episode admits something that television rarely does. And that real healing is incremental. And sometimes you just have to mm -hmm. stop to work on yourself. Uh, sure, this is a cheat because now we go off with the healed doctor on more adventures. But at least there's some acknowledgement that real healing takes work and is not done by the time the credits roll. Yeah. And it's done out of order, since it's Doctor Who. Yeah. And, I mean, that was one of the great things about Eccleston's Doctor, was that he was this seething mess of one moment he is sort of gleeful and cracking jokes, and the next moment he's issuing angry orders and on the verge of a breakdown because of, you know, what he's just witnessed yeah. and taken part of, you know, in the time war, uh, again, to Russell T. Davies' credit of being able to show levity in one second and gut punches in the next. Yeah. But all in all, I'm looking forward to more who. Yeah. Uh, I... Me as well. Probably more than ever in, in, in a really long time. Yeah. And I I can't wait till we discuss Shooty's first full adventure in the, in one mm. of our upcoming episodes. So, so if I had to make a prediction, it's that I bet the tenant will be returning at the end of Gutwas first season, along with Donna, to deal with whatever the boss is. The one who's watching. Yeah. The one that even the toy maker does not want to futz with. Yeah. <laughs> So every once in a while, we like to tell you things that we actually are fanning over as opposed to breaking them down and analyzing and reviewing them in-depthly. So, Mark, this week, what are you fanning over? This week, I am fanning over a show that just finished its run on HBO Max called Starstruck. It was created by and stars the incredibly funny Rose Matafeo. Rose plays an aimless 20-something New Zealander living in London named Jesse, who spends the night with Tom, an extremely famous movie star who she doesn't recognize until the next morning. The show follows their relationship, which is a roller coaster of breakups and reunions. Jesse is sort of a mess. She's smart and educated, but she works 
a minimum wage job at a movie theater. And Tom is sort of disenchanted with his life as a leading man. He's got no friends and immediately latches onto Jesse's. So even when the two break up, Tom is still hanging around because her friends keep inviting him to things like birthdays, weddings, and even births. While Tom is easily accepted into Jesse's friend group, Jesse doesn't fare so well in Tom's world. She's part Samoan, she's curvy and tan, and has a full head of glorious curly hair. You know, all things that us normies would find perfectly attractive, but Hollywood does not. Um, Tom's agent, who is played perfectly by Minnie Driver, hates Jesse. Uh, the first time Jesse leaves Tom's home, the paparazzi thinks she's the cleaning woman. At one of Tom's parties, everyone confuses her for the help. Okay, it's like one of those, you know, weird animal friendship shows where you see a Labrador and a hedgehog with friends and everyone's like, oh, that's not right, that's weird, but okay, if it works for them, great. Yeah, but people don't think that. Obviously, you would say that you're the fucking Labrador. The show can be a little repetitive as we watch Jesse and Tom break up over and over again, but Rosa Matafeo is so unbelievably funny and clever that you just want more of her no matter what's happening around her. And these characters go through so much that the series finale is a well-earned tearjerker. I'm admitting to a lot of crying in this episode. <laughs> we all cry, Mark. It's um, okay. It's acceptable. It's okay. Yeah. I think we're we're really in a renaissance of, of women comedians creating very intimate and eccentric shows like uh, Abbott Elementary, Chewing Gum, Fleabag. Oh, I love Chewing Gum, yeah. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, This Way Up, and Broad City. I think this show adds really nicely to that list. As I said, Starstruck is on HBO Max. If, like me, you can't get enough of Rose Metafeo after watching it, she also stars in a Taika Waititi production called Baby Done, which is currently on Amazon Prime. Awesome. I will have to check that out because I do like Abbott Elementary and Chewing Gum and My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I love Meanie Driver, <laughs> who also has a glorious head of curly hair. Not in this, she doesn't. <laughs> oh, People oh, in Hollywood don't yeah, have okay. curly hair, right? Not anymore, at least. Okay. Not since the 80s. Uh, <laughs> it's all not ironed. Not, not, since the, not, not, not since the big yeah. hair 80s? Unfortunately. So, Ryan, what are you fanning over this week? Well, Mark, what I'm fanning over this week is I've decided to go back in time and revisit Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. Ooh. You may remember this from the 80s as... One third of the show Robotech. Robotech to the rescue. I have never really watched it in its original Japanese with the subtitles and the very minor differences between the shows. Because as we know, Robotech was an adaptation of that that took three disparate anime series and tied them into one grand unified narrative. Uh, Mm -hmm. and Macross in Japan. I actually had no idea. Oh, you had no idea? No. No, there's three no. different anime series that are tied together in a in an overarching narrative. Um, but in Japan, Macross stands on its own and has had its own spinoffs. So Macross is sort of like Star Trek here, right? 
there's you know Macross two, there's Macross plus. So when you compare Macross to Star Trek, does that mean that there's a one sequel that doesn't get the show at all, one that's really boring, and then a prequel that's kind of racist? <laughs> no, 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 not 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 that bad. Um, but the original Macross, you know, the 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 lead character is not Rick Hunter; it's Hikaru Ichiju, so a Japanese character, and then. The first officer isn't Lisa Hayes, it's Misa Hayasi. So they're just minor differences in it. Uh, Roy Foker is way more like Riker in the, the the original anime. Things that were cut out in the TV production, he's a little more horny. He's a little more thirsty. Uh, <laughs> hmm. But, you know, they're just minor differences. But I wanted to go back and watch it in its original Japanese, and I'm about six episodes in. Uh, it's unfortunately not available anywhere for streaming in the U.S., but it is on YouTube. It's not on any of the streaming services. Uh, and there's a long history about why there's not a lot of Macross in the United States, and it has to do with the licensing of Harmony Gold and, and Robotech, which I don't even know where that's at anymore. But it's nice to go back and revisit this because Macross really is the template for the new Battlestar Galactica. It's the same almost story. These people are surviving inside this gigantic spaceship, these civilians and military people and fighter jets and all of that. It's if you if you enjoy the new BSG, go back, check out Macross or Robotech. You'll enjoy it. I do enjoy the new uh, Battlestar Galactica quite a bit. Um, you know, I never really got to watch Robotech when I was a kid, because in my area, they only played it very early in the morning, and I think it was on sporadically, and I never really got to to see it. It was just one of those things that was really special, and the kids who were on the know really talked it up. Here's why I, you know, I would say, like, if you like the new BSG, you might like this, because there is also a magical baby that unites two opposing forces in Macross. The, the giant, the giant people have a baby with the humans, yeah. right, or something yep. like that. Yep. 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 Uh, yep. Yeah, I think I remember that much. <laughs> she shrunk down, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, the way that they treated anime in the eighties. <laughs> now it's sacrosanct. Yes, it's I like know. let's fight over whether we watch it dubbed or subbed. Oh, that was a fight <laughs> when I was in high school when we were just getting the uh, the bootleg tapes. <laughs> I said, that was back in the day where you couldn't even get like licensed tapes. It was almost like drug deals. You had to go to someone's house to get the tape, the tape for the next episode. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And the only thing that I had ever seen when I was in high school was Akira. Very, very badly transferred, like almost not visible. And then um, Fist of the North Star, which is you know one of the most ridiculous movies ever created with people gushing uh, oceans of blood like in Kill Bill of, uh, all of their or or orifices yeah. and lines like Ray you smell it it's the smell of death <laughs> so basically Kill Bill uh <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this week I'm Ryan Thomas Riddle a jerk and I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all of her work at sockpuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. 
And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on the app formerly known as Twitter. And now, if you'll excuse us, we're off to Adventure in the TARDIS. And if you'd like to meet us there, the podcast is also on the app formerly known as Twitter, at ChipFullOfJerks. Dead naming people is a no, but dead naming Twitter is a okay by me. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs>